Hi, this is Emma Sutherland. Join us on FX Medicine next week, where I'll be talking to Dr. Kate Levitt and Kerry Sutcliffe about birth and how we can help improve the current statistics. Subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app and follow us on social media to make sure you never miss an episode. Hi, and welcome to FX Medicine, where we bring you the latest in evidence-based, integrative, functional and complementary medicine. FX Medicine acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia, where we live and work, and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay respect to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. With us today is Professor Imran Mayer, a world-renowned gastroenterologist and neuroscientist with over 35 years of experience in the study of clinical and neurobiological aspects of how the digestive system and the nervous system interact in health and disease. He has published over 350 peer-reviewed scientific articles and has published two great books that I highly recommend, The Mind-Gut Connection and The Gut-Immune Connection. So welcome to FX Medicine, Emran. Thanks for being with us today. Well, thanks for inviting me to be on the show. It's a pleasure. Well, it's a definitely a pleasure to have you here. So, so over the, the last decade or so, we have begun to finally appreciate the critical role that the gut has on health and disease, and in particular, the bi-directional relationship between the gut and the brain. And I know there's an increasing body of research that confirms that the gut and the diversity of a microbiome could influence how we think and feel and is linked to mental health conditions and even neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's disease and cognitive decline. So I know that there are, I mean, several lifestyle and dietary, environmental and biological factors that can influence the health of our gut and the diversity of our gut microbiome. Can you just briefly just summarise what these factors may be that might be influencing our gut microbiome? Yeah, so... I'd like to start out to saying that the brain-gut microbiome axis, in my opinion, is the central homeostatic regulator uh, in our bodies. Almost everything is transmitted through this system. So the food that we ingest is obviously a major factor, but there's also other molecules that the body produces, like bile acid or you know estrogen, for example, or androgen, which is secreted with the bile into the gut, which influences the microbes and the microbes break it down. So food and certain chemicals that we ingest, um, toxins, are the main influences from the gut side. So the brain-gut microbiome, people have referred to it as the brain-gut microbiome axis, I like to call it system because it communicates in both ways. But at the lower end, at the gut end of this brain-gut microbiome axis, food is the main influence that yep. changes. But then you look at the brain and the brain sends the signals, you know, every emotional state in the brain or acute and chronic stress sends signals down to the gut, including the habitat, which modulates the gut, which is the home for the microbes and changes their behavior. But it also, these stress mediators like norepinephrine, they can also directly affect receptors on the microbes and change their behavior. So now you have two major influences. You have food on the one side, you have the brain and emotional states and stress on the other end of the axis. And then there's other factors like physical exercise, for example. You know, it's been shown that 
moderate exercise has a beneficial effect on the diversity and the, the health of the microbiome. Severe exercise, like ultramarathons, actually have the opposite effect, are, are not good for, for the gut or the, the microbiome. And, and athletes have many of such problems related to these negative effects. Then there's also sleep. Sleep is another major thing, obviously goes through the brain. But sleep has a major anti-inflammatory effect. So healthy, the channel of the sleep plays a major role in, in inactivating inflammatory mm-hmm. mediators that might come from the gut. So it has a regulatory effect on the system as well. So I would say lifestyle factors such as food and exercise yeah. and sleep are probably the main, the main determinants of the health of the microbiome. Okay, so you've got your diet that's going to influence our microbiome and obviously the type of diet that we eat. And then you've mentioned sleep being a positive thing and then exercise being a positive thing up until a certain point and then potentially having an adverse effect on our on our guts if we do too much exercise like marathon running. Yeah, and I mean, you may want to add to these three factors, medications. So, you yes. know, medications in particular, the ones that directly affect the microbes like antibiotics, obviously have a major a negative effect on the microbial ecosystem. What does the research say about our mother's prenatal health and stress levels? What impact does that have on a growing newborn? That's an interesting thing. So a lot of research um, has shown the early life factors when an uh, infant is born, going through the birth canal of the mother, and basically for the first time, the sterile gut of the newborn is colonized by mm-hmm. these microbes, which are usually a mixture between the vaginal and the, the fecal microbiome of the mother. But then the interest moved you know, further upstream, and it was found that I mean, the vaginal microbiome of the mother is influenced by, for example, stress that okay. the mother experiences, and also by if the mother had, even in animal models, one dose of an antibiotic, that would affect the vaginal microbiome, and then downstream would affect the infant's colonization of its microbiome. So then also diet of the mother has a, has a big influence. So for example, if the mother is on the unhealthy Western or, you know, it's called the standard American diet, yep. it creates so this low-grade inflammatory state called metabolic endotoxemia. So women that are obese and have type 2 diabetes or have this metabolic endotoxemia, when they deliver a child, this child already is exposed in utero, mm-hmm. the brain of this child, to this low-grade inflammation. But then also when it comes to the birth canal, it gets a compromised dose of microbes from the mother. So there's really two ways that this uh, negative effect the intermicrobiome is. It's probably the most important programming phase in, in the human's life, you know, this first both the prenatal, then the perinatal, and the postnatal three years, probably the most important phase where long-lasting, sometimes permanent changes or damage can happen. As a psychologist, we often talk about the health of the mother during in utero, the impact it has on the growing baby, and we would often think about it in terms of its impact on stress hormones and all those factors, which is certainly happening but it sounds like potentially it's it's impacting on the child's gut microbiome when they, they get born. And so that could potentially have an impact on their health, including the mental health. Yeah, and you have these dual factors. One is mediated by the microbiome, as we just talked yep. about. And the other one, these stress models. So we've worked a lot with these maternal separation models where either pregnant mother is being stressed and 
you look at the effect on, on the nervous system, on the stress system of the offspring, or you do that stress on the mother of newborn animals, and that will have a major effect. So there's multiple avenues, one of them being mediated by the microbes, an important one, that has a long-lasting effect, you know, not just on, on diseases like allergies that are sort of starting early in life, but also programming the microbiome in a way that it's more susceptible, for example, for cognitive decline later in life for Parkinson's and depression and anxiety. So I, I think if you had to focus on one thing to improve population, gut microbial health, you would probably want to invest your efforts and your money early on in life from pregnancy to the first three years of life. So so there's obviously then critical periods in life where exposure to certain factors such as, you know, stresses can have a profound impact and permanent effect on the gut microbiome. Is that correct? Is there a point where once you're exposed to it, there's going to be long-standing effects on the, on the microbiome? I'm always impressed about the resilience of biology and biological systems. So it's not that if you had negative exposures as a child or if your mother was stressed during pregnancy, that your fate is sealed for the rest of your life. There's always things that you can do in terms of counteract these negative influences. Yep. So, for example, then a healthy lifestyle, healthy diet, not taking an antibiotic for every you know, respiratory infection. Mm-hmm. The big question is, does it return the microbiome then to a optimal state or just it improves in, within a certain bandwidth, but the upper limit of that bandwidth um, is still compromised compared to somebody who, who who grows up in a perfect world, you know. Yeah, I was interested. I was reading your book on uh, the gut immune connection book that you recently published, and you talk about how even the soil and its microbiome have changed over time. Can you tell us how soil is different now, and and reasons why? Yeah, so, so I mean, the changes in the soil mainly have to do with. With industrial agriculture, with um, this mass production of corn and soybean and, uh, you know, miles and miles of these monocultures with tractors going through and plowing, you know, turning the soil upside down without regenerating the soil with cover crops or rotating different crops over the year where you basically replenish the soil with the kind of nutrients and bacteria that the soil under the natural conditions would have. So the diversity and the abundance of, of microbes, microbes has gone down uh, significantly, particularly in these areas where industrial agriculture, both with the, mm-hmm. with the tilling and with the use of chemical fertilizer, which basically replaces the microbes. So typically, mm-hmm. the microbes would interact with the root system of plants and in a very elaborate symbiosis would stimulate the plants to produce phytonutrients, um, help to absorb minerals and many things. So if with chemical agriculture, the plants grow big and fast without the help of the microbes. So all these elaborate mechanisms that are built into nature, into these interactions of soil microbes with the plant roots and then enhancing the, the nutrient content of these plants. All this is sort of is being eliminated. So chemical agriculture, mm-hmm. so we don't see it. I mean, the plants look great. They get bigger and bigger, and many of them lose their flavor if it's fruits and vegetables. But also the, the plants no longer produce these molecules by which they defend themselves against pests and diseases. 
So that requires another input of chemicals. So essentially, we have replaced the normal life cycle of plants and soil microbes with a system where we suppress these natural systems and rely totally on on the chemicals. So there's a growing movement of what's called regenerative organic agriculture, or you know, using cover crops and not using extensive tilling, sort of giving back to the soil the things that, that we take out by growing millions of tons of produce. So we're giving this back and you know, and people have shown that okay. it's actually more cost effective. You need a lot less chemicals to grow your plants and the plants are better, healthier than if you grow them in the modern, traditional way. And so does that change in, in the soil? Does that then also influence our microbiome? Yeah, so this is the interesting thing. So in a natural environment, the soil is abundant with microbes, not mm-hmm. as dense and not as concentrated as in our gut, but pretty close to it. And these microbes constantly interact with the rhizosome, which are the little rootlets and the roots of the plant. Um, mm-hmm. And as an interaction, the plant secretes sugar-like molecules, which attract the microbes, and then the microbes stimulate the plant to produce what's called polyphenols, or often the misnomer of antioxidants, which are then transported by the plant into the leaves, the fruits, the vegetables. And when we eat these plant-based products, then we consume these polyphenols that originated from the interaction of soil microbes with the plant rootlets. And these polyphenols are not absorbed in our small intestine because they're such big molecules. So they travel down the intestine where they are met by the microbes and the microbes in the gut now break them down into small molecules that are both beneficial for the microbes, for our gut microbes, and beneficial for many functions of our bodies and our brain. So you have this this complex system. It it starts in the soil goes through the plant, the plant's products, goes through our digestive tract and end up, ends up with microbes in our gut and the gut transforms it into health-promoting molecules. Okay, so it's the polyphenols in the plants that then potentially kind of impact on the, on the gut microbiome. So it's not necessarily the polyphenols and the antioxidant effects, it's more around what potentially it could do on the gut microbiome. Yeah, so in the literature, many of these polyphenols, if you test them in a test tube, they act on cells. They act like antioxidants. But when you eat those polyphenols with your fruits and vegetables, they cannot be absorbed. They don't show up in your bloodstream. It's only the breakdown product created by the microbes in your gut that become absorbable. And less than 5% of the beneficial effects of polyphenols can be ascribed to the antioxidant effects. It's a growing science to find out what all these metabolites, these polyphenol metabolites do to our various organs. I mean, a very interesting finding is that it improves the inner lining of our blood vessels, so the endothelium. It, It improves that function and prevents inflammatory changes that are caused when that inner lining is disturbed. So that's been shown in the heart shown in the brain that you know many of our most common chronic diseases are related to this low-grade inflammation. And so what these polyphenols do, or these metabolites of polyphenols, they improve the endothelium function, the endothelial function of these blood vessels, get rid of the inflammation, 
and prevent the downstream effect that we have chronic ongoing inflammation in our blood vessels in the heart or in the brain or in the liver. So the impact of this on our health overall of these systems that we've been talking about is tremendous. We just have not fully scientifically understood it. We know that eating lots of fruits and vegetables is good for your cardiovascular health and your brain health and health in general. But we don't know exactly all the molecular mechanisms that are on the lightest. But these vascular anti-inflammatory benefits, I think, are a big part of the story. Yeah, I know that there's a you know a good body of research demonstrating that polyphenols can have a really positive effect on mental health and cognitive health. Me personally, I've done lots of research on curcumin and, and saffron in terms of its impact on depression and, and anxiety. And I wrote a paper several years ago where there was obviously a lot of work interested in trying to increase the bioavailability of curcumin. And so in this paper, I write, well, maybe it's not bioavailability, but it's its impact on the gut that curcumin has many of its potential yeah. effects and that kind of fits with what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, curcumin is another molecule. It's one of those big molecules that cannot be absorbed by our small intestine. So it just behaves like these other polyphenols that I mentioned to you. It requires the microbial metabolism to be turned into these anti-inflammatory components, which have been shown, you know, with curcumin, turmeric, it's been shown in, in randomized control studies, for example, that has benefit on inflammatory bowel disease, the significant mm-hmm. inflammation of the large intestine, and most likely regular high consumption of turmeric will probably reduce this chronic inflammatory state that seems to be like the common denominator now of our chronic diseases. You can almost find in the literature like all roads lead to Rome, you know, you can almost Mm -hmm. say all roads lead to chronic low-grade inflammation and it does start in the gut because 70% of our immune system is located in the gut. And it's just amazing that we've neglected it and, and really haven't considered the the importance of it, but certainly we're becoming more and more aware of it. So we've got then the changes in the soil, then that affects the polyphenol kind of abundance or, or even the diversity uh, that's potentially occurring. I also saw a paper, I read, just briefly read the abstract of the paper actually, but there was also some a research showing that gardeners or people who engaged in regular gardening versus people who didn't engage in regular gardening and their microbiome was also different. So is even you know, potentially exposure actually to the soil? Is that, is that possible? I mean, there's different possibilities how this could happen. So certainly if you don't constantly disinfect your, your hands when you work in the garden, plants and fruit have millions of microbes living on them. It's really mind-boggling how many microbes are on the surface of an apple or in the core of an apple. And so if you expose yourself by handling this and not necessarily constantly washing your hands, you will incorporate many of these microbes into your into the digestive system and they will be in your household. It's also been shown that with farm animals, if you live, grew up on a farm with farm animals, you will have a different gut microbiome with yeah. greater diversity and that's with gardening probably as well. Then there's also the psychological aspect, clearly the relaxing effect and yes. the mindfulness effect of gardening through this mechanism that I mentioned earlier, that the brain sends the signals down to the gut all the time, will have an effect on, on the microbes as well. Yeah, unless you're a gardener like me where you kill everything and it just stresses you out, but uh, but yeah, potentially. 
Yeah. Now, the other thing I wanted to briefly just talk about was obviously the foods we eat now have changed, as has the quality which can affect our gut. But in your books, you also talk about how we eat and the timing of the food intake can affect gut microbiome. And obviously there's increasing interest in meal timing and fasting and intermittent eating and time-restricted eating and all those different options. Can that, the the timing and, and doing fast and intermittent eating, can that affect our microbiome positively or negatively? Yeah, I mean, there's obviously different fasting techniques. Yeah. Um, I, I think most of them, unless you do it for spiritual reasons and, you know, go to meditation retreats on a regular basis, I don't think they, they necessarily apply to the average person. But time-restricted eating is something that has a lot of theoretical and practical benefits both in animal models and in humans. Mm-hmm. And it is something practical. It's feasible. With a little bit of discipline, you compress your eating time into eight hours. It's not certain yeah. when this has to be, you know, if it's in the morning or if it's towards the evening. But that for 16 hours, you keep your GI tract empty from entering food into it. So let's say you have your last meal, it takes about an hour or an hour and a half before this meal has emptied your stomach and your small intestine. And then you, you got this basically empty of, of nutrients coming in. And it will switch to a different pattern of contraction and secretion and blood flow and immune function. So it, it essentially switches into a different operating mode. Um, it's a rhythmic pattern every 90 minutes. There's a wave of forceful contractions going from the esophagus all the way down to the end of your intestine. And it moves things. So any bacteria that have overgrown or have an increased abundance in your first part of your small intestine, every 24 hours will move everything down towards the large intestine and excessive amounts of bacteria that may have ended up in the small intestine will be moved back to where they belong, which is the, you know, the colon or the large intestine. So that's one effect of this time-restricted eating, a very important one. Mm-hmm. The other one, I mean, so you automatically eat less. Like in the evening, if, if you have your meal at, let's say, mm-hmm. at 7 o'clock, you don't sit in front of the TV and uh, eat snacks or go to the fridge and drink a beer. or So you, you, you essentially consume less because you want to keep the 16 hours free mm-hmm. of any exposure to, to, to nutrients. And so that's another factor. A third factor is that it actually has been shown to change what's been called the gut microbial geography. So how close the microbes get to the layer of your gut. So normally they're separated by a mucus layer. When you fast it, they move closer to the actual wall of the gut and interact more with the receptors on, on the side. So there's multiple things happening from okay. you know, changing the habitat decrease in caloric intake, and then direct changes in, in, in microbial function. So we noticed the gradual decrease in weight, which, which was easy to maintain as long as you stick with that kind of diet. It is a little bit difficult to maintain, you know, with social activities or when you yeah. travel. Uh, but as a regular pattern, eating pattern, I think it's something that I would highly recommend. So you're eating in an eight-hour window, is there a particular time when that should start? Or you mentioned kind of after 7 p.m. So do you generally go from 11 till 7, 11 a.m. to 7 p.m.? Is that your eating window? Yeah, yeah. 
And for some people, depending on their work schedule or varies. Um, it's interesting. So in animal studies, it's clearly been shown to be have major metabolic benefits, you know, decreased um, inflammation, better, you know, metabolic health of these animals. They didn't gain weight, even though they had free access to unlimited amounts of calories. In humans, it's been more difficult to show this. So the studies that have shown the same benefits in humans and others have not. Yeah. But there's a lot of factors, obviously, and anytime you try to replicate something in a human population, which is heterogeneous weight-wise and dietary habit-wise. And it's always difficult to prove it. I mean, for us personally, as a scientist, I shouldn't say this, but having experienced this myself, I would say it does work if you stick to it in a rigorous fashion. Yeah. And it is achievable. It's, you know, eating that in an eight-hour window, if you kind of get used to it, it is certainly achievable. So uh, whereas some different diets and your fasting diets and things like that can be a lot more difficult to uh, to do. So. Yeah, it's not realistic. Also, this 8-16, this time-restricted eating, it's more like the normal eating rhythm that our bodies have evolved to. I mean, what we're doing today, you know, everybody always needs energy bars and snacks the whole day, you know, and then in the evening on the TV. It's a constant influx of calories into our gut, which was not the case even, you know, 75 years ago. Yeah. So I, I think yeah. um, it's kind of returning, like many other things, returning to traditional patterns of lifestyle and uh, including food intake. Actually, I, last week I did the uh, fasting mimicking diets, which I'd never done before. So five days on that fasting mimicking diet. And I did it. It was yeah, I didn't feel bad. I did, you know, energy-wise, I was okay, but just so repetitive and boring. <laughs> so not yeah. sure whether I would will do it again, but I don't know how people can do the fasting ongoing, that's for sure. There's just a pleasure of food that sometimes and, and the social connections that you and the social engagement and things that, you know, just the lifestyle stuff that you can't do with the fasting, that's yeah. for sure. And this is a really big thing. I'm glad that you mentioned it. I mean, the early studies on the Mediterranean and the health benefits of the Mediterranean diet, which have been criticized. But one thing that the authors noted at the time in the 60s was this remarkable social interaction of people in the Mediterranean countries around food. And you could almost say, I mean, food is the one element that holds people together, you know, on festivities and celebrations and funerals, like it's almost like the glue of social interactions. And if you break that or if you make food intake and a non-enjoyable activity that's always uh, with anxieties and worries in your brain that you're eating the wrong thing, I personally think that's a big part of the negative effects of what's called the standard American diet, that you have almost eliminated that portion of lifestyle around food, you know, the positive reinforcers. Definitely. Okay, so I could keep going forever. There's so much um, content. I mean, in your books, there's so much information and I certainly highly recommend it for people who haven't read your books in the past. So we'll certainly have links to it in the in the show notes. Just finally, uh, are there any tips or recommendations for holistic practitioners who are working in this area that you can give to help them work working with their patients? You know, just one comment about this. It's, it's interesting. I've always been kind of critical of functional medicine in the U.S., mm-hmm. but then I've, I've gotten invited to quite a few of their meetings. And, you know, I have to say that from a general perspective, this holistic view of the body 
and the importance of lifestyles, paying attention to lifestyles, is something I, I really like about any of these holistic, you know, healthcare approaches. And I think when it gets to the specifics, it, I'm I'm more critical. You know, I don't mm-hmm. I, I like to pay attention to evidence because if, if I think if we stop paying attention to evidence, then we just have to say. Yeah, we're all selling placebos or prescribing placebos, which is not a bad thing either, because, I mean, I think we have underestimated the power of the placebo response. But I would recommend in general, if you can afford and have access to a healthy, varied diet and you do the things that we talked about, you pay attention to what you eat predominantly, plant-based, where the food comes from, how is it grown is it grown in a regenerative organic way or at least an organic way without all the chemicals on it? When do you eat? Can you change your lifestyle to restrict it to a certain time of the day? Eliminate or greatly reduce sugar consumption and have your moderate daily exercise. There's also some a recent study on one of the polyphenols, uh, on, on the flavanols, a study done in thousands of people, a three-year intervention with placebo or with the supplement in a capsule form. And it showed the benefit on uh, mortality and morbidity from cardiovascular diseases. And there will be another study coming out from the same population that mm-hmm. there's also decrease in the prevalence of cognitive decline. I mean, those studies are rare, you know, because they're obviously very expensive, costing millions of dollars. But it was also interesting, these flavanol supplements worked best in the people that did not have a high natural flavanol intake. So they, they were the ones that were actually probably not on a healthy plant-based, not largely plant-based diet. Yeah, absolutely. So you, you, you know, we really need to concentrate on our diet and our sleep and our exercise and our social connections and our stress levels. They're absolutely the integral part of one's overall health. Out of curiosity, what was the supplement that you're referring to in that study? That that supplement, it's a flavanol. It's one of the flavonoids, and you know you have to you have to take the same doses as it was used in the in, in, in the study. It's not inexpensive, but <clears throat> I think if you are concerned about your you know cardiovascular and your brain health. It's pretty worth investment to you know to use that. Um. Well, terrific. Well, thank you very much, Emran, for uh, joining us today, uh, and thank you very much for the research that you've done in the area. And the, I mean, you've just published an immense amount of articles and, and scientific papers in the area, and the and the two books, the Mind Gut Connection and the Gut Immune Connection. They're great, and I certainly recommend anybody interested in the the gut and the brain and the, and the microbiome to, to read those books are they're terrific so thank you very much for the work that you're doing yeah thanks a lot for having me on, on the show it was a pleasure talking to you and uh, I hope your audience will, will get some benefit out of this as well so thanks everyone for listening today don't forget that you can find all the show notes transcripts and other resources from today's episode on the FX Medicine website I'm Dr Adrian Lopresti And thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. 
Make sure you never miss an FX Medicine episode by subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram.